ago, they wrote an encyclopedia that meant to cover everything. Everything from mathematics to physics to life after death and to reconcile all the world's religions and philosophies together. Well, it was a huge project. And while not everyone may agree with what they came up with, it has survived even till now as a very influential, if somewhat mysterious and controversial work. We're talking here about Ikhwan Asafa, or the Brotherhood of Purity, one of the most unusual and influential philosophical groups during the Golden Age of Islam. So please stay tuned. talking today about a topic that I have tried to avoid for a long time, and this is because the group known as the Brotherhood of Purity, or Ikhwan Safa in Arabic, is a very mysterious group even today, uh, and about them we really know very little. But their work is influential and extremely interesting, even though it's very hard to make solid conclusions about them and exactly what they were up to. So this is a little bit of a difficult subject, but I think it just gives you an idea, reading what they wrote and discussing what they wrote about the um, incredible variety and diversity of intellectual activity that was going on uh, in the Abbasid Caliphate at its height. So what do we know about these people? Well, we know that this was a group active in Basra, which is a city in southern Iraq, uh, in the 4th century of Islam. That would be in the late 900s to uh, 1000s AD uh, by the Christian calendar, which, you know, of course, is at... Uh, not at the exact high point of the Abbasid Caliphate, but when the Abbasid Caliphate uh, was still strong. Now, Basra was an important city, perhaps second only to Baghdad in the empire, and even today in Iraq, this is probably also a true statement. And so we've mentioned it a lot before. A lot of great uh, scholars either came from there or spent time there. So, who were these people? Well, what we think is most probably these were a group of government officials and scribes, like uh, mid-level but definitely educated people, uh, who used to have social gatherings in which they discussed everything from philosophy to poetry and, and so on. Now, this was nothing unusual. I mean, that's what the elite did during that time. The biggest, of course, or like the gatherings that the caliphs would have, or the viziers, when they would have the top scholars and poets and singers and um, all the top uh, people come in and you know display their talents. So it's very easy to see how a social network uh, would get started, and people with similar philosophical ideas and interests would come together. You know, instead of getting together to discuss football or um, you know, rock music, or they'd get together to discuss uh, philosophy. And they would pass around letters amongst each other, you know, sharing some of their ideas. I mean, nowadays you would forward uh, an article or a post that you saw. Well, this was sort of the equivalent. And if this was a particularly intelligent and creative group of people, you could see how these letters would get combined into a book. And so that's what happened here. And so when we're talking about a sort of secret, mysterious group of philosophers sharing ideas, I mean, that sounds like something very strange and subversive, but it's probably not that different uh, in nature than uh, a lot of gatherings that were going on. It's different in terms of the volume and, and how deep they went, but um, this was a, a fairly normal uh, social thing among the upper classes. Okay, so why do we know about them today? Well, they produced an encyclopedia 
that was considered the most comprehensive of its time, uh, much more comprehensive than anything produced in Europe until centuries later. Now, it's made up of 52 parts, which are usually called epistles in English. Uh, and, of course, epistle is just a fancy word for a letter. So if you have a letter and you want to make it sound fancier than a letter, it's an epistle, like, you know, the epistles of Paul in the New Testament. So if you look this up, you'll often hear it called the Epistles of the Brethren of Purity. But really what it was, I mean, it was a series of letters that they passed around. Now, that's about all we know about them. Now, there's been lots of speculation about who these people were, um, and there, there's been no consensus. It's even been debated whether there actually were multiple authors or whether it was one person who wrote it. Um, we just, we don't know. Okay, so anyway, these 52 letters covered pretty much everything you could think of, or at least everything they could think of at the time. But this was not something like the Encyclopedia Britannica or Wikipedia. Uh, it was an encyclopedia of topics from their philosophical point of view. Which leads us to the question, uh, what was their philosophy? And this is where the speculation starts. So there are a lot of what seems like Shiite influences in their work, and specifically Ismaili Shia. And so a lot of people have speculated that they were Ismailis. And some sources just say right out that they are Ismailis. Um, in fact, it's the Ismaili Institute today that published the translation of their works. Other people say no, they were just influenced by that. Another theory is that these folks were just, you know, hardcore philosophers and they were trying to make a comprehensive philosophical work that would take in everything, that would reconcile all the world's knowledge. So, I mean, they were disturbed, as, you know, a lot of people are. I mean, sensitive people are when they wonder, you know, why are there so many different um, philosophies and ideologies in the world? You know, if there's truth, and if God is giving us truth, then why do you have all these different religions, all these different philosophies that, you know, consider each other heretics? Uh, you know, that doesn't sound right. So they were trying to pull all of this together and, you know, show that it all did mash up. And, of course, they were not the first to do this, and they certainly wouldn't be the last. I mean, nowadays, a lot of people are trying to do that. Okay, but um, the Shiite ideas may be in there because they consider them particularly useful, but if they did, they certainly leaned very heavily on them. And, and of course... Um, this was an area even, I mean, today this this geographical area that we're talking about is a is, uh, heavily Shiite area, so it may have just been an influence on them. In any case, I mean, they do lean very hard in that direction. Uh, for example, just one thing, they describe Ali as the legitimate heir of the prophet, which of course is the, the cornerstone of Shiism. That's what it's all about. But they do take in Greek, Hindu, Christian, Zoroastrian, Persian, Sufi, thought, I mean, anything that they could uh, come across was incorporated in there. So whether they actually were Ismailis or not, um, their ideas definitely go along with them. So you may be a little rusty at this point trying to remember exactly who were the Ismailis. I mean, they popped up a lot in our discussions of the Abbasid period. They ended up being um, really the main rivals and often rebels against the Abbasids. Uh, but, of course, I mean, who knows the way podcasts work? You don't always get the episodes in the in the right order and you have to scroll down to get to them so i'm sure not everyone is listening to these in chronological order so just briefly recap although it isn't anymore the ismailis were the largest shiite sect at the time and of course if you remember the main difference between sunni and shia is that shia believed the spiritual leadership of the community 
passed from the prophet Muhammad to his son-in-law Ali, and then through Ali's descendants. And the leader of the community uh, at any one time was called the Imam. So Ali was the first Imam, uh, then his son Hassan, and, and so on. But one of the big differences that, that came out of this is that unlike Sunni Islam, where everyone after the Prophet is just a normal person, and the only difference between them is in their amount of learning, okay? I mean, so no one, at least officially in Sunni Islam, has any kind of holy powers, spiritual powers, anything like that. They just have learning, and leaders of the uh, Sunni community are known as scholars because you know that's what they are. Um, the Shia, of course, believe that the Imam has special spiritual powers, which are not available to the average person. Now, of course, we could spend the rest of this episode and the rest of our lives discussing and debating just how far those powers go uh, and people have, but that's not our purpose here today. But the reason there are so many different sects of Shia Islam is that different groups have differed on exactly who was the imam at a given time. So the line of descent uh, breaks up. If an imam had more than one son, then you had more than one choice of who that would be, and different people followed different imams. And then after those splits... Uh, those get multiplied over generations. So we have many, many different sects of Shiism, and they differ on um, how that lineage of imams goes. Now, most Shia lineages stop at a certain point, and it's different depending on uh, which one we're talking about, but most of them say that the imam at some point went into a state of spiritual hiding and is known as the hidden imam, um, you know, didn't die, but is waiting to return. And so, therefore, no one on earth is actually an imam. They are, you know, just the, the representative, the closest uh, contact to the imam. Well, the Ismailis are an exception in that their line continues up to the present. And there are several branches within Ismailis, uh, of course, because they all, um, you know, if that line of imams has continued until today, then there are many, many opportunities for there to be disputes about which way it should branch. The best known of these is the Nizari branch, whose imam is the Aga Khan, uh, the current Aga Khan is the 49th in the line, and he's a British citizen and one of the largest philanthropists in the world and is responsible for the translation of what we're about to talk about today. Okay, so anyway, that's a, sort of a long discussion. Uh, the largest Ismaili state was the Fatimid Caliphate, based in Cairo, of which we've said much before. But the key point there is their Khalif, was also their imam at the same time. Well, the uh, Ikhwan are writing at a time, we're not exactly sure, either slightly before or right about the time the Fatimid Caliphate is established. Now, before that, uh, before that happened, the Ismailis had to be fairly secretive because uh, they didn't have a state of their own. Um, and so they had to sort of hide their beliefs. And as a result, the Ismaili sect became known uh, for its idea that there is hidden knowledge, and only a certain elect can know the knowledge. So they see surface meanings and hidden meanings in the Quran, for example, and all other revelations. Now you can see how this sort of fit with their status as being somewhat underground, being hidden uh, in their activities, and believing that there was uh, hidden knowledge. Well, it's around the time of the Ikhwan Asafa that the, the, the first uh, real state is established, Ismaili state, and that's the Fatimid Caliphate. Up until this point, there had been this big tradition of keeping hidden. So this may explain, to a degree, why a group within the Abbasid Caliphate 
uh, would still be secretive and would not put their names on this, and we wouldn't know exactly who they are. But in any case, um, the idea of hidden knowledge and a hidden meaning to things is very, very uh, prevalent in the encyclopedia they wrote. And, you know, really, one could say the whole point of this was it, it is the encyclopedia of that hidden knowledge. Now, if you were to ask more Sunnis, um, they would say it's like a cult with hidden messages and numerology and all this kind of stuff that they think is very bad. Um, but this is one reason why there was opposition uh, to the Ikhwan Safa. This is why they kept their uh, stuff hidden. Uh, but they were allowed to um, get away with writing this and distributing it for a while but in the year 1135, the Abbasid Caliphate declared that their, their work was heretical uh, because of the Ismaili ideas, and he ordered all the copies to be burned. But by that time, however, uh, they had circulated so far that you know, they couldn't get them all. They weren't all burned, and that's why we have it today. Okay, so that's the background of you know, who and what uh, this was. The Ikhwan were trying to incorporate really all human ideas into their philosophy, trying to reconcile them all, and because it's something that they, you know, really personally, you know, wanted to understand. So, for example, one quote from their encyclopedia says this: it "says Know this, brother, we are not opposed to any science." We do not cling fanatically to any doctrine, and we do not keep ourselves away from any of the books that the sages and philosophers have written or composed on the various sciences, and the subtle meanings which they have extracted by their intellects and observation. As for the support, assistance, and foundation of our cause, they are the books of the prophets, the revelation which they have set forth, as well as the information, inspiration, and revelation passed to them by the angels. Okay, so they're saying everything, all types of knowledge uh, is, is open to them, and they want to include it. So you can see why they would need a huge secret encyclopedia if you're going to try and do that project. And their ideas end up becoming very complex, uh, and it's a result of trying to combine a number of different philosophies, and they were heavily based in this uh, secret knowledge. Now, beyond that, though, we can see that they definitely had sources that they relied on more heavily. And, the, of course, the largest was Greek philosophy. And particularly, they were very big on Plato, or at least how Plato was interpreted by the people of their day. Uh, we don't think that they had actual any of the actual works of Plato. They had um, translations and interpretations of these. Uh, but they also include Aristotle's view of the cosmos and, and everything. So... They come up with a theory to explain everything, the universe, and you know everything that's in it. And so they're going to start from the top. Uh, and this is very heavily influenced by, by Plato. So they believe that everything begins with the source, uh, the one. Now, this, we're not talking about Neo from the Matrix, but this is like the original essence of everything. Now this of course would be understood by monotheists as being God and so they are at great pains to try and reconcile this Greek concept of the of the one, the original, with the concept of God of the scriptures. You know the difference being that in the monotheistic scriptures you know God is very much a personality, a being, uh, who you know who, who makes decisions and talks and has actions and so forth, 
but they're they're trying to reconcile that. Um, and so for the Ikhwan, who are basing it heavily on the Platonic theories, the only thing you can say about the One is its absolute unity, meaning unity of everything. Okay. Now, from there, the first thing that the One produces is known as the world intellect or the supreme intellect. And this is another Greek concept. Uh, Aristotle was big on this. Now, this is probably the most fuzzy concept in their thinking, uh, and the name really doesn't help at all. When we say supreme intellect, it's not what we would think of. It, this is not like a brain, like a giant brain um, that, that we would think of. And in fact, it's, um, it's confusing because it's probably the opposite of the way we use the term intellect. Um, you know, but to understand this, this is one of those things like understanding the theory of relativity. You know, if you spend all day locked away in a library uh, doing nothing else, you know, finally at some point you may get it. So I'm, I'm definitely not saying that I do, but uh, basically what, what they're talking about here is not a brain being the organ that can find knowledge and understand knowledge and store knowledge what they mean by like the world intellect it really is the knowledge and so the metaphor that they use to explain this is between light and seeing okay or light and the eye we are able to see because we have eyes and so the eye is is the brain in this case but that's only because there's light out there that illuminates things you couldn't see if there were no light and so the equivalent here is the relationship between knowledge and our ability you know to to know things well that's because they're illuminated by the universal intellect so a way of saying this is it's sort of like the source of all knowledge that ever has been, ever can be, ever could possibly be. And that is the first thing that is created. Then from that, matter is created, and then eventually humans are created. Now this, of course, is like the opposite of the way that modern science sees it. But it's a very platonic concept here because it's based on the idea that literally the idea of something has to exist before the thing does. The idea of a tree has to exist before any actual tree can exist and so forth. Um, now, that's, we sort of look at it the other way in that trees exist, and then we formed a concept, a generalization to describe them, and the concept existed afterwards. That's not the way that they're seeing it. So, you know, the blueprint for all ideas that could, could be and have been, that's what's in this world intellect. So it's a way of saying this is like all the knowledge um, that could ever be had. And this fits very well with Plato, because Plato's most famous theory uh, is his theory of the forms or the ideals. And this says, in brief, I'm just going to butcher it here, and say that, in brief, there's an ideal form of everything that exists before any actual thing does. And everything on Earth is a dim reflection of this. So there is such a thing as perfect beauty, perfect justice, perfect freedom. Anything you can name, it actually exists. Um, and Plato describes these things, these concepts, as actually existing on pedestals up in heaven. Now, the reason we never see perfect justice, perfect beauty, perfect freedom is because everything on Earth is like a copy made from this blueprint. And, of course, they're imperfect. And so, I mean, therefore, we have things that are, are partially beautiful, but they're all different because they're distorted. But there is really an absolute concept of beauty out there. This is why no two trees are alike, no two leaves are alike, because they're all per imperfect copies from the blueprint. But there, there is actually a perfect concept of what a tree should look like. So trying to reconcile this, they would say the universal intellect is like the place where all these perfect forms exist. 
Okay, from this comes a world soul, which is basically an intermediary between the pure intellect and pure matter. And from pure matter comes um, all the actual matter that we know. Okay, now I realize that probably sounds very confusing here and you wonder why they do that. Remember, they're trying to reconcile a lot of different ideas. But what they want to get to is from the idea of the one, which, you know, may be God in this case, which is completely, uh, complete unity, doesn't have parts, cannot be divided. You want to get from that to a world that's full of all these different objects that are imperfect and impermanent. Well, how do you get from that? Well, instead of just having God create the world out of nothing, they're going in stages, so we go from that to this idea of all these perfect forms, all this pure knowledge, which has to exist before pure matter, which then exists before actual matter, and so forth. Uh, it probably does not sound very convincing to you, but it is very much based on um, you know, the principle coming from Greek philosophy, that the, the idea of something, the concept of something, exists before the actual thing exists. Okay, now, that's quite a lot to digest, but that is sort of their adaptation of the Greek philosophy. Well, they need to square that, of course, with Islam, and really they want to square it with Christianity and all the other religions as well. So they're going to weigh in on a lot of the controversies, and we've discussed these in, in previous episodes, uh, many of them, like the controversy about the attributes of God. Does God have attributes? Right, Because we know the main concept of God, particularly in Islam, is that God is one. God is unity. God cannot be divided. You don't divide God into parts. Um, but we also have God who is all-merciful and all-powerful uh, and all-knowing. Well, being all-merciful and all-powerful are two different aspects. So can we say that this one, this unity, God, has an aspect of mercy and power? Well, that would be like two different parts. That would be like having a leg and an arm. Well, you can't do that. Well, but are you going to say God is not all-merciful and all-powerful? So, as you know, philosophers got all wound up around this concept of saying, yes, e either it is or it isn't. So, their philosophy sort of takes this into account, because the actual first thing, the one, uh, which, you know, in, in their minds, this is what some people call God, this one is unity. But then it creates this universal intellect, and it's in that where mercy, power, knowledge exist, and they exist in the absolute forms. So that's where all-merciful, all-powerful, and so forth exist. You have, um, you have God creating it well. Now, you might say that's dividing God as well, because you have God creating this thing, and that exists, you know, with him, alongside him. Aha. Uh -huh. They go back to the idea again, which we discussed with some of our other earlier philosophers, that time is a created thing as well. There is no such thing as time before God creates time. So when we say God, the one, creates this universal intellect, in our thinking, we get a clear picture of, okay, there's God by himself, he does creation, and boom, this thing comes into existence, and now it's separate from him. So mercy and compassion and knowledge and power are now separate from him. But we're imposing our view of time on this. So God creates this thing, but since time doesn't exist, that doesn't mean that he created it in time. You see? So there's never really a time where God existed and this intellect didn't. Okay? 
again, to me, this sounds like limitations. You're playing games with language. Um, it's not a reality, but uh, they took it seriously. And you can see how they've wrapped everything together. They got uh, Plato, Aristotle, Islam all wrapped up into one package. a big job but they're not done yet um, and they're, they're not going to be done for quite a while uh, the next thing they're going to try and wrap in there is astrology now we're talking about uh, some big time astrology here way more complicated than you get on the psychic hotline you know when you call up and they say you're going to meet a, a, a tall handsome stranger we're talking really complicated uh, astrology, which incorporates everybody's astrology. So we got Greek, Persian, Hindu, all of it put together. Uh, and this is going to lead to a theory of history and religion and how to predict the future. Because remember, they want to incorporate everything. So not only do they want to incorporate, you know, everybody's different ideas on a subject, but they want to incorporate all the different subjects together. So this whole theory of the universe, how we go from this one, this unity, or which, you know, may be called God, down to rocks and plants and humans, okay, that's not just separate by itself. That is going to be connected to all, the, all their theories about how animals act and plants act and why physics works the way it does and why chemistry does and why math does. I mean, again, this is, this is a comprehensive theory okay uh, so uh, they're going to bring astrology in and astronomy now we you know, of course we know these are two separate things astronomy is actual you know charting of the stars and planets accurately astrology is saying that you know because of the stars this and that are going to happen to you well they're going to do both again because you wouldn't have those through as separate things they've got to be uh, fused together and this is where we really get into the secret knowledge. I mean, this is heavy, heavy on the secret knowledge here. So just to give you an idea, um, this is another quote from their encyclopedia. It says, Among the features of our brethren is that they are learned in the field of religion. They know the secrets of prophecies, and they are well trained in the philosophical disciplines. When you meet one of them and seem to note integrity in him, tell him something that will please him and remind him of the recommencement of the revolution of revealing and awakening, as well as the dissipation of worries for mankind, from the transfer of the conjunction, from the sign of fiery triplicites to the sign of vegetal and animal triplicites in the tenth circle, which combines to the house of power and the appearance of the eminent people. Okay, uh, if, if you feel bad because you didn't know what all those things were that were mentioned, don't, don't feel bad. Uh, not only uh, do I not know, but you know, most people alive at the time wouldn't have known what those all referred to. This all refers to uh, the secret knowledge that they have. Okay, so, I mean, that sounded like it was really, really uh, in-depth, and it was. Okay, so... Whew. How do we get from this theory of the universe through astrology to being able to explain human behavior and personalities and history and the rise and fall of dynasties and all that? Because it's all going to be one thing. Well, they start with Aristotle's view of the cosmos, which is, was pretty well known and was generally accepted at this time. Uh, and that was that there are nine spheres around the Earth. Okay, they knew the Earth was round. Um, I mean, more people today think it's flat than did back then. Um, but they believed that the planets were embedded in each of these spheres. So that's why there are different distances and why they uh, move. Okay, 
So you start from the closest one to Earth, and they are the Moon, Mercury, Venus, the Sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. So already you can see, I mean, if you know even basics about the solar system, you can see that there's problems with that. But based on what they knew of astronomy, that seemed to work. Now, we said there were nine spheres, and I only listed seven because that's the how many planets they knew of. Um, the eighth sphere has all the stars in it. So by that reckoning, every star is equally distant from Earth. Um, and the last sphere has the forms of the zodiac on it. Now, again, to, to be clear, what we're talking about, the stars, the actual stars themselves, are on the eighth sphere, the second to the last one. All the stars are out there. What's on the ninth is the, like, the pattern of the zodiac, which they thought was very, very important. Um, you know, the constellations and what, you know, what zodiac patterns they made. But it's the same thing like with the, um, the universal intellect, which has like the patterns, the abstract forms, blueprints for everything that actually exists in the real world. Well, this is the conceptual model, the ninth sphere, that has all of that for the stars. And the stars are very important because as, as Aristotle thought, and they kind of backed up, um, the stars, why do we have all these points of light way out in the sky? These were seen as the way that the one or God interacted with the world, basically shot his power into the universe. Now this, of, of course, was an attempt to combine Greek astronomy with Islam, and of course, as you would imagine, a lot of strict Muslims did not like that at all, um, but it was a way of trying to reconcile it. That, that was fairly common. That was well established, but um, they're going to take this even further. Okay, so now we've got these nine spheres rotating at different speeds and directions around the Earth, which are causing the planets and the stars to be moving around constantly. So that's, that's why you see them, and every day is a different pattern up there. Okay, but occasionally um, they're going to line up, because these are like, understand, these are like nine balls nested inside of each other. So occasionally, you know, two of these planets are going to line up from Earth, and one's going to block the other. This is known as a conjunction. Now, astronomers study these, and this is what they would plot out. So the most familiar example, of course, would be an eclipse. That's where the moon lines up in front of the sun. In astrology, conjunctions are really important. So if we think of that old 60s song, The Age of Aquarius, right? the line is when Jupiter aligns with Mars. Now, in that song, they thought that Jupiter aligning with Mars was going to bring in a new age, an age of peace. Uh, but that sort of thinking was very, very common, that once these planets aligned, something was going to happen instead of it just being, you know, a, a coincidence. Well, the Ikhwan have lots and lots of conjunctions. They have calculated every possible conjunction of planets and stars and figured out what, when they occur, how often they occur, and made a whole version of history based on this. Because remember, there was still this idea coming from the Greeks that that was how God uh, dealt with the world, how he influenced the world. Now, there, there are way more of these in you could count, and I certainly don't know what they all are, um, but there's, there's lots of them. Okay, so of course the biggie would be when all seven planets line up in a row, and they believe this is the way the world started. So when they started off, everything was lined up, and then the spear started moving. Okay, well, based on their calculations, which I have no idea of knowing whether this is correct or not. I, I, I tend to think it's not. But they say this will happen every 360,000 years. 
So just to give you an idea of how long that is, uh, the entire recorded history of humanity is about 5,000 years. Uh, the first humans moved out of Africa about 100,000 years ago. So, uh, you know, 360,000 years ago is, is about the time Neanderthals emerged. Okay, so we're talking about a huge period of time uh, for this to happen. Now, the Akhwan, who, who they actually borrowed this from Hindu astrologers, they believe that the world would last, get this, uh, a cycle's worth of cycles, meaning 360,000 times 360,000. So when that cycle occurred 360,000 times, which is just in, you know, an insanely long period of time, considering how long humans have actually been around. So we're, we're talking about a huge amount of time. Um, and, of course, this is a bit of an issue because... You know, the, the scriptures don't exactly say, you know, how long the world is going to last, but, you know, all religions, or particularly monotheistic religions, have, you know, pushed the idea uh, that, you know, human history is what matters, and we are living close to the end times, you know, that we're, we're headed towards the end times. So, I mean, the idea that I mean, we got that much time left, hmm, wow, um, that's, that's really you know, really a lot and doesn't go well with their theology. Now, that's just one particular cycle. In fact, the Ikhwan, they, they have they have more cycles than the, than the Tour de France, okay? So they have all these different theories of conjunctions, which not just the planets aligning, but the planets aligning with particular stars and particular constellations. So, uh, and, and from this, they base their... Um, theory of history, which, I mean, they went back and looked at history and tried to see what matched up with what. So, for example, there's one cycle of conjunctions which happens every 20 years. They said this causes changes in national leadership. So, like, you get a new king every 20 years. Now, there's a longer cycle uh, of planets lining up, which is every 240 years. So they say this controls the rise and fall of dynasties. Okay, so one empire falls and another one comes. Now there's an even longer one, which is 960 years. That, they said, controls the coming and going of religions. And, and this was borrowed from Persian astrologers. This is where they got it. But the way they justify it is they then link this with the Quranic statement that one day to God is like a thousand years to us. Well, that's 960 years, but they then take that, I mean, you're talking 960 solar years. They say, but if you use the lunar calendar, which is what the Islamic calendar is, then you get 990 years, which they say is close enough. So that's what the Quran means when it says a day to God is like a thousand years to us. They're talking about this 960-year cycle of religions. Now, a cycle of religions, you can imagine, is not going to sit well with a lot of people. Okay, uh, but it's going to go even further here. Okay, so 960 years a religion gets to be in, 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 um, in the ascendant, to be dominant. Well, they divide that into seven periods, and each of those corresponds to seven prophets. So that means when a religion has its 960 years uh, lifespan, that's divided into periods of seven prophets of that religion. Well, they look at monotheism, and they're taking that as one religion here. Monotheism. They say that Adam is the first prophet, then Noah, then Abraham, until we get to Muhammad, who is number six. Now notice what I said. There are seven prophets in the cycle. Muhammad is number six. Okay. What about number seven? Well, Number seven is the one who hasn't come yet, because obviously Muhammad was the, the last prophet um, that, that their society knew of. So number seven was still to come at the time that they were writing this. Now, of, of course, uh, we've gone past 960 years uh, since then, so, I mean, we, we know 
that this isn't going to line up, but at the time they were writing, it worked. So number seven, the one who is yet to come, is the Mahdi. Now we have mentioned this uh, in some other episodes. Uh, the Mahdi is not found in the Quran. He's not mentioned there, but it is a popular belief. It's a, it's um, you know popular in Islamic tradition, and it, it comes to the point that a lot of people actually believe this is the idea of the Mahdi being uh, someone who's going to return at the end of time and establish righteousness on earth. And it ends up sounding very much like the return of Christ in Christianity. But that's, I mean, that's not the same thing, but that's what they believe. Uh, now, throughout history, a lot of people have claimed to be the Mahdi, and they've started several wars based on it. So, but the time when the, the Akhwan were writing, they could still say the Mahdi was due in the future, and it would fit into their time cycle. In fact, you had plenty of time for that. Uh, but you can see how this is going to upset people with a very strict view of the Quran, because I mean, there's, there's there's nothing in the Quran that says that, and it doesn't you know align with a a seven prophet cycle. But it does appeal to a lot of popular traditions that people actually believe. Okay, so that's how history goes. All right, okay, that that's easy enough. But we're not done yet. Okay, so they've, they've now tried to reconcile monotheistic religion with this cycle of the stars, uh, but they're not done. This is when they're going to roll in the Shiism, and particularly the Ismaili Shia. Because they say for every prophet, okay, so there's a prophet, uh, there is something called the Wasi. And this is um, basically someone who accompanies the prophet, who is, who is with the prophet, and the division is that the prophet is the one who ex reveals the external form of the message. Remember how they said scriptures, this is the Ismaili belief, that scriptures are the external form of the message. These are meant for the masses. But there's a secret form, the batin, or hidden form, the, the batin message, which only those properly indoctrinated can understand. That's what the Wasi uh, r reveals. So in, in every one of these seven periods, you have a prophet, you have a Wasi who's with him. So like, you know, for example, M Moses, right, uh, had his brother Aaron who went with him and so forth. Well, they see that Ali, who is, of course, the forerunner of the Shia, as being the Wasi for the Prophet Muhammad. And, you know, it's through him that this secret knowledge is passed on. But that's just one of the many cycles. So, you know, the idea that the Ismailis have of this secret knowledge, you know, they said that this has happened many, many times, and this will happen with every religion. Okay, well, just like everybody... Who has developed a theory of cycles of history, the Ikhwan saw themselves as being right on the verge of a major change, right? Even the age of Aquarius folks, uh, th their belief was that the ages changed every 2,000 years, but guess what? They just happened to be living in one, and they believed they were right on the verge of a big shift um, to the age of Aquarius, which would be this age of peace, which just happened to be right in the middle of the Vietnam War, which is, you know, one thing they were all against. So they were saying, you know, oh, we got all this war, but right now we're about to shift into peace. Well, we see how well that worked out. But, you know, no one ever um, prophesied a, a theory of historical cycles and said, hey, well, the next one is just way the heck off. Well, for them, they said they were on the verge of a major change in history, and um, they may well have been, particularly if they were Ismailis, because they were living in the 11th century, and they would be right around the time that the Shiite Fatimid Caliphate uh, arose. Again, we don't know exactly when they were writing. You know, we kind of know when these things were passed around. We know when they were uh, banned. So it does fit pretty well. So they may have felt 
that either the coming of the Shiite um, Fatimids, which again, I mean, it didn't happen in one fell blow. They started in North Africa and worked their way all the way to Egypt. So it was a gradual process. Well, either them taking over Egypt or getting really close to it and making a lot of progress, uh, this is what they were referring to uh, by being on the verge of a major change. Well, it was the verge of that uh, change to having actually a Ismaili Shia state. This seems like a lot, man. I mean, we have started with the creation and the nature of the universe. We have worked our way down to a complete theory of history that tells us when everything is going to happen. You would think this would be enough, but it doesn't stop there. As we said, they wanted to wrap up everything into a comprehensive theory of the world. So we went from the one down through the spheres, down to the earth, down to individuals. And they adopted the Greek concept that every human being was the cosmos in microcosm. Now that's really hard to, to understand. Uh, and it's really hard to be convinced about. Uh, but they definitely believe that. So they found parallels for all this stuff in the human condition, right? There is a universal intellect. We have individual intellects. There is a world soul. You have an individual soul. You have the the whole uh, material world, all the matter. Well, we have a material form and so forth. And the goal was to purify yourself, to enable your soul to leave the body, well, how do you do this? Well, they're going to try and explain this again by putting together all the world's knowledge. And so this is where we move. Uh, it's one of the points we move from a descriptive study of, you know, what is the world and how did it get there to how should you live? Because, I mean, they, really, they're going to cover everything. Okay, so... But as always, they try and put everything into a nice metaphor you can understand. So, they say you need all the world's knowledge. Well, what is all the world's knowledge? Well, it comes from four books. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Well, exactly. When they say books, they mean this in the cosmic sense of books. Like a book containing like all the knowledge on a certain subject. Okay, so you're not talking about a book you can actually buy. So in a sense, uh, you could say they're talking about types of books or categories of books, which go in an ascending order. Okay, so the first are the books of all the scholars. That is all the natural sciences, all the philosophy, like, like everything. Right, so every, everything ever written on physics, chemistry, politics, botany, you name it. Wow, that's pretty big. That's the bottom. That, that is like the lowest, the lowest of the four books. Okay. Second is the books of Revelation, being the Gospel, the Torah, the Quran, etc. These are the spiritual books. So they definitely see that scriptures are above human writings, but they kind of lump them all together. Now, at one point they do talk about the superiority of the Quran to all previous revelations, and with it, the superiority of Arabic to all other languages. But, you know, this really seems like kind of obligatory thing they're just saying based on everything else, because they really, really seem to be putting everything on an equal level except when, I mean, they have to say that they're not. So, um, you know, but in, in any case, remember, the Quran is the most recent revelation, you know, being number six in their, their series of prophets. So, okay, it's the best one revealed, um, but there's still more to come, okay? But anyway, 
that only gets us through two levels of books. We got more. Okay, now, level three are the books of nature. Now, this does not mean physical books. I mean, they're not talking about books written about nature. That was way back in level one. They're talking about actual nature itself. Like, nature is a teacher. Nature is something you can learn from. So, like everything on Earth and the planets and the sun and the stars, that, that's part of it. Okay, um, but there are things it can teach us. Wow, that sounds really big. That's still only level three. Wow, okay, what on earth could be the highest level? Well, it isn't anything on earth. Uh, the fourth level is the divine books. Now, this, they do not mean scriptures, because we already touched them. They were level two. These are the, quote, books that only the pure angels can touch and which have basically all the patterns for the souls. You're talking about something that is very, um, you know, it's like magical. It is not something physical. Uh, so, again, it's paralleling this idea of the divine blueprint. Like we had this universal intellect where all the concepts that could ever be had were located, and those came before you know, actual ideas, which came before physical things. Well, in this sense, this is like the divine blueprint, where every individual soul is derived and goes from there to inhabit physical things. But there's this definite division between the soul as this thing that is d divine and then at this highest level that exists there, and that is put into your earthly body, which is, of course, the most corrupt and mundane and weakest of forms. And your goal is to liberate it, basically to get it out of this weak body and back up onto this higher level where it belongs. Now, this is very clever uh, because you can definitely see a parallel to traditional religious thinking, right, where you have a soul uh, that, you know, God puts in your body, and when you die, your soul lives on, and if you're good, it goes up to heaven, and it's treated nice. There's a definite parallel there. You could see this as being their interpretation of that and their way of reconciling that, but it's on a much, you know, a much higher level in the sense that you know, it's not just something that happens to you. Well, you led, you led a good life, so boom, okay, now your, your soul's going up to heaven. No, this is more you liberated. You liberated from the chains of the body through your, you know, getting this higher knowledge till you reach this level where, you know, your, your soul is back up on, you know, on this really high plane. Uh, it also, in addition to sounding a lot like Plato's ideas, it jives very well with Ismaili ideas um, about there being this secret knowledge, uh, a kind of knowledge that's at a different level, and that on Earth we have only shadowy reflections of it. And that's all that most people see, but there are some of those who are liberated from that narrow viewpoint and can see this. Wow. Okay, now, if um, the Encyclopedia of the Ikhwan sounds interesting, if it sounds amusing, it is. I mean, it's very, very long. Of course, you probably don't want to read the whole thing, but, you know, parts of it are actually very interesting, and it's somewhat, somewhat easy to read in the way that they write. Uh, their language is uh, a lot simpler than... Or oh, say someone like Al Ma'ari we talked about last time, but even though this sounds like a lot to take in, this is just one part of the encyclopedia. We haven't even talked about ethics, about animals and plants, about why you know some animals eat grass from the ground and you know some eat meat. All of that, all of that is going to be addressed. Uh, we're not going to cover all of that, but it's all in this book, okay? So just give you an idea of the breadth of this thing. 
Well, next week, we are going to look at one of the most interesting discussions, and it's definitely the most famous one in all of the Ikhwan, and that is the case of the animals against man. Yes, this is actually when the animals brought a court case against human beings, accusing them of animal cruelty. Wow. Um, so, it's, it's, and it's quite a stirring case. So you'll want to be there to hear that. So again, thank you very much for your kind attention. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the Ikhwana Safa. We will talk more about them and the case of the animals against man next time, inshallah. So shukran, jazilin, wa ma salama. Thank you.